0: On today's episode, we discuss Meghan Markle and the fact that she will not be the first black member of the British royal family. Simply incredible. Welcome to Podcasting Nubia. My name is Andre Samuels, and I'm your host, and I'm the author of the book Nubia, The Rise and Fall of African Empires, and that is what we discuss every week on this podcast. We discuss the rise and fall of African civilizations. Now, for the past couple of weeks, we've been focusing on Nubia, or Kush, one of the largest and most enduring African empires. But this week, I think we're going to switch topics a little bit. Um, whenever there's something in popular culture or popular news that sort of relates to African empires, I like to uh, connect that to this subject so that it's it's less intimidating, a little bit more interesting, and a little bit more relevant to everyone. So this week, I thought we would discuss Meghan Markle. She is about to become a princess in the British royal family, and When the proposal occurred, there was actually quite a bit of controversy in just about every community, especially in uh, the British community. Um, There are those who still, for whatever reason, oppose having a black person in the British royal family. In fact, one of those individuals uh, was in the royal family herself. Her name is Princess Michael of Kent. She wore a pin uh, to a, a particular pin to meet the future princess for the first time. Uh, and that pin was uh, what they call a Blackamoor pin. It, it's a pin that essentially is a, a black person sort of dressed up uh, in very posh attire. It recollects a period when having African slaves was considered to be extremely prestigious. And so she chose to wear this pin to meet the future princess, who herself happens to be half-black. It was her passive-aggressive way of showing her disapproval of the future marriage. Now, what's interesting about that is that it gives us a really great opportunity to talk about British history and the fact that Meghan Markle will not be the first black person uh, that becomes a member of the British royal family. The opportunity that this gives us is to discuss an interesting intersection in history when African history or African cultures and civilizations interacted with Europe. The first black member of the royal family um, was, will not be Meghan Markle. So the first black member of the royal family wasn't just a princess. Uh, she was actually the Queen of England. King George III uh, actually married a woman uh, who would become Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. It's a bit of a mouthful. But this occurred in 1761, and she reigned as queen until 1818. It's important to kind of talk about how this happened, because one thing that I'm very particular about with African history is that everything we discuss should be factual. Uh, it shouldn't be hyperbole, and it shouldn't be uh, in any way exaggerated. So I think it's important that you know the specifics of how this kind of happened, because you know, for a long time it wasn't accepted as actual history. It was sort of considered to be a wives' tale amongst black members of the of the British Empire, um, and, and for a good reason. But it wasn't always accepted as history, and, and in fact, that that refusal to accept it as British history is very recent. I mean, as early as uh, the the mid-2000s, you would have still found historians denying that this ever happened. So this is a, a recent uh, acknowledgement by traditional historians. Queen Charlotte was a descendant of Margarita de Castro Isusa, which was a black branch of the Portuguese royal family. And so to discuss how there became black members of the Portuguese royal family, we kind of have to step back even further uh, and talk about an even older history. So we're going to go back into history to around the time of the Dark Ages, actually, uh, around 711 A.D., And so we're going to talk about a civilization called the Moors. Uh, The Moors were a group of Muslims who effectively conquered Spain and and much of Europe, Uh, and they established a new Islamic caliphate in Europe. Now, despite what you may think of the Islamic world, or whatever stereotypes you might have in your mind, um, this Moorish culture was highly educated. Uh, The architecture that they created was uh, incredibly sophisticated, and it's enduring. You can go to Spain and still enjoy uh, much of the architecture that they left behind. It was relatively progressive uh, for the time, uh, incredibly wealthy, very opulent. In fact, it was such an incredible culture that we actually have the controversy of numerous groups trying to claim credit for the Moorish civilization, uh, including Afrocentric scholars Uh, this is not going to be a popular opinion um, or uh, it's fact it's not an opinion but this will not be popular uh, for some Afrocentric scholars uh, who like to claim that the Moors were a black civilization they were not but it's also important that we chastise equally traditional historians who try to essentially turn the Moors into Europeans It's ironic, because the truth of the matter lies somewhere in between, and it's sort of hinted at by Princess Michael's uh, very racist pen that she wore. The reality is is that the Moors were not black, they weren't white, they weren't Arab, they were all three. The Moor civilization begins with General Tariq ibn Zayed, uh, who led an army of North Africans. The numbers are a little bit confusing. Some scholars would like to say around 1,700 men. Uh, others will put it closer to 10,000 or 12,000. Uh, but they were all North Africans because that's where he recruited his, his soldiers from. And this is where some of the controversy comes from, because Afrocentrics want to think of all North Africans as being black. And traditional scholars, uh, and this becomes a little bit more insidious... Uh, attempt to divide Africa and treat North Africa as this sort of strange place where uh, there are nothing but um, essentially whites living in Africa, and neither is accurate. North Africans don't have a single physical type. Some are very dark and black. Others can be fair. Uh, The Moors are often just called Berbers, and North Africa itself has seen an influx of Arabs and And Europeans and despite what we may think it's not cut off from the rest of Africa so North Africans consisted of a mix of phenotypes of physical types so this force that general Zayed took to Europe with him would have been mixed in terms of their color it would have been a mixed bag of of individuals The one thing we can certainly say is that they would have appeared much darker than the native Spaniards. And that's where the term more comes from. Now when they conquered Spain, they created a civilization that uh, was referred to as Al-Andalusia. And this became the crowning jewel of Islamic civilization. The Europeans would eventually start to use the term more to refer to Muslims in general. It became a cultural indicator, not a racial indicator. So a European who converted to Islam would be called a Moor. A black man living in Spain at this time would be called a Moor if he was Muslim. And an Arab would likewise. And that's why when you look at Moorish art, you do see this mixture of physical types. Now, what becomes a little bit confusing is the fact that the black form does become a sort of prominent mascot for Moorish civilization, and that's why Princess Michael was wearing that pin. They distinguished Black Moors with the term blackamoor, and that became sort of the hallmark of Moorish civilization. If you were thinking of a Moor, yes, this darker complexion, this sort of fierce and frightening figure in their minds would be a Black person. And quite frankly, this forms the basis for a lot of the the xenophobia that you might see throughout Europe. The Moors ruled Europe for nearly 800 years, and so this left a mark on Europe. Sometimes we attempt to romanticize Moorish civilization as being incredibly progressive, Uh, but the reality is, is that any conquered people are going to resent being conquered, no matter how nice you might be about it. So these Moors, who in some ways contributed substantially to European culture, uh, would still be resented for essentially dominating Christendom. Now, they were regal, they were wealthy, they were warriors at times, and many of them, yes, were black. And that's the group that married into Queen Charlotte's Portuguese family. So in the 13th century, Alfonso III of Portugal conquers a little town. Called pharaoh and he demands essentially that he be allowed to take the governor's daughter he has three children with her and one of their sons marries into a noble family the de souza family and that is how queen charlotte gets her moorish black ancestry now the thing that Traditional historians used to point to to sort of deny the the blackness of Queen Charlotte uh, Was the fact that this was so old this is back in the 13th century and Queen Charlotte wouldn't become Queen until the 18th century so there's so much time in between when this Moorish ancestry enters her bloodline that traditional historians felt Pretty justified in simply dismissing it as being so ancient that it wouldn't really matter. The problem with that is that virtually every depiction of Queen Charlotte shows her as being very ethnic, very black. And this was done on purpose by Queen Charlotte. Queen Charlotte made sure that her, most of her official portraits were painted by a man named Sir Alan Ramsay, And Ramsay was an ardent Abolitionist. In fact, um, he married uh, the niece of a of a man named Lord Mansfield, who was uh, the judge that ruled in seventeen seventy two um, that slavery should be abolished in the British Kingdom. Lord Mansfield's niece uh, also happened to be black as well, so he had a vested interest in the emancipation of blacks. Now, at this point in history when you do have what are essentially mulattoes, uh, mixed-race people, the artistic convention was to simply uh, play down their, their their ethnic features and make them look as European as possible. Uh, Queen Charlotte, um, with her abolitionist artist, uh, refused to abide by that convention. And so that's why Most of the portraits of her show her looking fairly ethnic, black. So the issue remained, why does someone whose black heritage uh, begins in the 13th century still show such strong features uh, by the 18th century? The reason is pretty basic and common uh, in royal bloodlines. Uh, The answer is inbreeding. Um, Her blackness, essentially, was preserved by the custom of royals in Europe to breed within the family. And so what we have to acknowledge, then, is that the Moors were deeply ingrained in European civilization. And so they were often depicted on jewelry. And that's where that brooch that Princess Michael of Kent was wearing comes from it comes from a time when Europeans would fetishize uh, the, the Moors and in particular the Black Moors at that time it was also considered to be very prestigious to have an African slave uh, and so and so the, the slaves of that period are, are dressed opulently and so the art uh, of the time sort of reflects that and the brooches and the jewelry uh, reflect that. And quite frankly, when Europeans wanted to depict the most frightening image of the cursed Moors who conquered them, uh, they would lean towards the black and swarthy images of the Moors, as opposed to the more familiar-looking European-esque Moors. The reality is that, that there were many blacks living in Europe at that time, and this image that we have of the ancient world as being racially balkanized um, is incorrect. Now, my book, Nubia, The Rise and Fall of African Empires, doesn't spend a ton of time on the Moors, and the reason for that is simple. The Moors were a civilization that prominently featured blacks. Blacks contributed significantly to lots of civilization, especially throughout the Islamic world. I actually have a whole section of my book that discusses the role of blacks in Muslim societies, because blacks traveled all over the world. We often think of blacks as just being slaves, but blacks were merchants, they were warriors, they were generals, they became rulers of kingdoms outside of Africa. So we have to divest ourselves of this image of black people as merely being slaves and laborers. Blacks helped shape world history in a variety of cultures outside of Africa. And my book attempts to tie all of that together. But my book also primarily focuses on black African civilizations because those are the civilizations that don't often get covered. We get so distracted with trying to claim credit, essentially, for civilizations like the Moors uh, or for civilizations where blacks were featured prominently that we actually ignore our own civilizations, and we fail to give them the kind of attention that they deserve. And because of that, it becomes easier for them and their place in global history to get lost. The Moors were essentially an African, Arab, and Islamic civilization. They featured Berbers and Arabs and Tuaregs and every other group throughout the Islamic world. But I think it's time that we focus on drawing attention to the black civilizations of Africa, and not on cultures where we have some credit and some involvement. But for this podcast episode, it's sort of an interesting intersection of history that the Moors who conquered Spain and married into the eventual family of Queen Charlotte, uh, who then used her position to emphasize her black heritage for the purpose of ending slavery. She bore several children, and eventually those children produced Prince Harry, who will now marry another black woman. I really want you to be able to reorient your mind and your impression of the ancient world. This period of time that we often think of as uh, being represented by blacks in Africa and whites in Europe and Asians in Asia and Muslims in the Middle East uh, represents a level of racial isolation that never really existed. Uh, Very quickly, we're going to go over some of the interactions Europe had with Africa. Now we've discussed the Greeks uh, and their familiarity with Black Africans, uh, but Europe's exposure to Black empires grew during the Crusade period, uh, during which European warriors were exposed to some of the Black kingdoms, the Christian Nubians, um, through the Crusades. And there were Blacks that became very famous throughout Europe, like St. Maurice, who led a Roman legion. And these figures became symbolic for greatness in Europe. So when you observe European architecture, sometimes you will find black statuary. Uh, You'll find uh, places like uh, the Chartresque Cathedral, which was built in the 13th century. There were also uh, mythologies and legends about... uh, Rulers like Prester John, uh, who was rumored to be a sort of a, a black crusader king surrounded by Islamic kingdoms that were constantly trying to, to attack him. So Europe at one point uh, sort of fantasizes about the Africa that they don't know much about. And then once they became more acquainted with Africa, uh, there were ambassadors and dignitaries that constantly visited Europe, The Ethiopians in particular uh, began sending delegations uh, to visit uh, Europe. They sent princes, they sent other high-ranking officials, and this was often reflected in European art. Uh, The Ethiopians actually maintained a listening post uh, throughout the Mediterranean, uh, and Ethiopian monks were protectors for holy sites in Jerusalem. Uh, There were ambassadorial delegations in 1306, 1402, 1428. Um, in fact, um, Emperor Yishak uh, of Ethiopia uh, proposed uh, a marriage to King Alfonso V's daughter to seal an alliance. In fact, it was supposed to be a sort of double marriage, actually. And the, the sort of intercourse between the two cultures, in fact, so many African delegations... Uh, visited Europe that um, there were actually African centers of study built. Uh, The Church of St. Stephen the Great, um, which uh, adjoins the Vatican, um, was renamed as St. Stephen's of the Ethiopians. It was considered to be a hostile for Ethiopian visitors, uh, and eventually it morphed into a Center for Ethiopian Studies Uh, there was a famous um, Ethiopian scholar, Tafsa Sion, uh, who stayed there. Um, In 1486, uh, the king of Benin sent his own delegation. Uh, 1487, the Jolof kingdom sent another delegation. The Congolese um, embassy was built in 1488 as another center for African studies in Lisbon. So there were constant interactions between the governments of African kingdoms and those interactions actually leave us a wealth of information to to develop a better understanding of what life in those African kingdoms was like Uh, because there was this period where African civilizations and European civilizations were trading partners Um, they were considered allies they engaged in military joint military adventures together in fact um, by the 16th century uh, 10 percent of lisbon the capital of portugal at that time was black and about seven and a half percent of seville which was one of spain's primary ports was also black so when we discuss the existence of blacks in the british royal family it's not some sort of Wives' tale. It's not something that is uh, really considered to be controversial anymore. Um, now that we've sort of moved outside of the the period of, of you know racial bias in in history, um, it's reasonably accepted by most scholars. And so, Meghan Markle will not be the first black member of the British royal family. In fact, she won't even be the root of of, I guess, what you might call blackness in British ancestry. Recently, there was a a bit of controversy over uh, what the British call Cheddar Man. And Cheddar Man is essentially a a British fossil. Uh, He's the oldest British fossil, and he was found in Somerset in England. And what's interesting about Cheddar Man is how relatively recent in human history he is. Uh, Cheddar Man is around 10,000 years old. And yet we now know that Cheddar Man had black skin and blue eyes. And this caused a ton of controversy in Britain. There were a lot of people who did not want to accept this reality. We continue to believe that races are, are truly separate when in reality there is, as you've all Heard only one race, the human race. The controversy over Cheddar Man was interesting because it it put on display how deeply ingrained the notion of races are in our our modern thinking. Most anthropologists and historians will tell you that there is only one race, the human race, but we still continue to to cling to this notion that there is something fundamentally different from us or separate. But what Cheddarman shows us is that there really aren't very many differences. And if you look back far enough and really not even that far back, we really do all come from the same family tree. Cheddarman is less than 10,000 years old, and what he shows is that if you just take black people and put them in a subtropical environment, and they switch diets from from fish to farming, they develop a vitamin D deficiency, and their skin color starts to change simply because they need to absorb more vitamin D from the sun. And that's it. That's the difference between all of our so-called races. So when I try to get people to understand African history, I'm not trying to get them to 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 pay attention to African history simply because it represents black people. African history represents humanity, and by not studying it, by not learning from its lessons, by not respecting it, and, and giving it the place that it deserves in history, we are denying ourselves a critical part of the human story. There is a uh, an article in the New York Times uh, today, actually, uh, talking about how young African Americans are tired of hearing about Harriet Tubman. And while I don't particularly like the disrespect of our history, I do understand the longing for new heroes and new figures, and I do understand the longing for a history that is not defined by slavery. The reality is that African civilizations contributed handsomely to global civilization, And I think there is a real appetite uh, amongst blacks and non-blacks alike to understand the contributions that African civilization made. And so that's why I wrote my book, Nubia, The Rise and Fall of African Empires, because I think it's about time that we developed a respect for the contributions that black civilization has made to humanity. And the audience for that is everyone. Blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, Native Americans, because ultimately, it's the story of humanity. Next week, we'll be discussing architecture in African civilizations, in particular, the Nubian Empire. You can purchase Nubia, The Rise and Fall of African Empires on Amazon.com, and you can tune in to this podcast next week, as we'll discuss a new aspect of African civilization and its connection to the modern world simply incredible.